Good evening. Make sure I'm, uh, you can hear me all right. Um, is it okay if I just move this over because I guess I can move it over. I have a tendency to move around and I don't want to step on anything. Ladies, we are so excited to be back here this evening. And if I remember, about a year ago we were here, but it was really hot. We're kind of doing hot Bible study, right? Guaranteed to grow you spiritually and lose 10 pounds all at the same time. So we're a little cooler tonight, which is a blessing, although we do hope that the sun does come back out. Um, but, but truly, we're excited um, to be able to be here tonight. We've been um, in a lot of prayer and preparation um, and just being able to open up God's word in a way that would impact our hearts. And so tonight, I don't want us to be about just an intellectual study. And, and while I hope it might be a little entertaining, um, we don't want it to be about just that either. We really want to be about looking into God's word in hopes that we will get a better glimpse of who he is. And in looking at who he is, that should begin to transform who we are and then how we live. And so tonight, our study of Esther is actually going to start back in the Exodus. So if you brought your Bibles tonight, please turn back to the book of Exodus. And, and you can follow along in some of the story. I'm going to be moving along fast because we want to set up some of the background. Anyone who would hear the book of Esther being read in their time would have already had this historical background to unpack the narrative. Unfortunately, we don't always understand all of the background, so we're going to do a little bit of a tour through history so that we can lay a historical foundation that will help us truly grasp all that God has for us to understand as we study the book of Esther. So we're going to start back with God's first call to draw the people for his own. It was his desire that he would have a people in which he would be their God and they would be his. He starts that with the patriarchs. If you remember, there was Abraham who was first called. Abraham would give birth to a son named Isaac. Isaac would have twin sons, one named Jacob and one Esau. Esau would sell his birthright to his brother Jacob, and Jacob would become the son of promise. Jacob would go on to have 12 sons, one of them, the second to the youngest, being Joseph. Joseph would be hated by his brothers and sold into slavery into Egypt, a turn of events orchestrated by the living God in his perfect plan would set, Egypt, would set Joseph up to be second in line only to Pharaoh in that land, in by which he would save his people from a great famine that was coming. So Joseph's family 
that the future nation of Israel would find refuge in Egypt for many years. They would grow and they would prosper. But a new pharaoh would come on the scene. This pharaoh would not remember Joseph. And he would begin to be fearful of these people, the Hebrew nation that was continuing to grow and to multiply. And he was afraid that they were going to become so powerful that they would threaten the, the rule there in Egypt. And so he began to try a different plans to subjugate the Hebrew people. Finally, he put them into full bondage, and for 400 years, God's people would be enslaved. But God would hear their cry, and he would send a savior. That would be Moses. Moses would come, and he would be the mouthpiece of God, and he would come to Pharaoh, and he would tell Pharaoh, God said to let my people go. And this course of action would set into place a series of events that would orchestrate God's grace, his majesty, his signs and wonders being put on display for all of Egypt to see. Ten plagues would come to the land of Egypt, finally bringing Pharaoh and that nation to their knees. But it wasn't just the majesty of God that was being put on display for Egypt's sake. God also wanted his people to see who this God was that was calling them out and the mighty works in which he was willing to go to to bring them to salvation out of bondage to slavery. God wanted his people to know when I say I am your God, this is who I am. Powerful, isn't it? And that same story will be told. His story of salvation and redemption will be told over and over and over again until it culminates in the cross. Where God would send the final Savior to come to the cross to, to live this in, in this in our broken world to live a perfect life that would come to end at the cross where it wasn't just the physical death of a, of, a, of a crucifixion that he would die, which was horrific in itself, but it would actually be the spiritual wrath that he would take as God poured that out on him so that he would pay for our sin. It's a great salvation. And in the same way, he put himself on display with great signs and wonders back in releasing his people out of Egypt. It's the same power and majesty that he puts on display when he saves you and I from our sins. It's his great power and his majesty being told throughout history. So, here were his people. And he wanted not just the Egyptians to know, but his people to know what he would be willing to do to bring them out of slavery and bondage. So they come out of what would be the final display, would be as they're backed up against the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army has now decided that they're going to come in and re-enslave them and take them back. And God does this final miracle, which is to part the Red Sea so that they can pass through on dry land. 
and I come through the other side, and they are in awe of all that God has done, and they have seen his power, and the Egyptians have now been swallowed up, and everybody around, can you imagine, would have heard of the incredible and powerful God of the Hebrew people. But upon entering that desert, one of the first things that happens is they fall under attack. They fall under attack from a marauding, vicious tribe. That tribe is named the Amalekites. And the Amalekites had a special uh, a, a, a strategy that they would use. They would come from behind. This last group of humanity would be traveling through, and the Amalekites would come from behind, and they would begin to attack from the rear. Now, who do you think would be in the rear of this mass-traveling group of humanity? Women, children, the elderly, the infirm, those who were sick or disabled. And so it was a cowardly way, and they would attack at the rear until they were in full-blown conflict. And so they did this to this fledgling infant nation that God had just rescued. Now, there's something really unique about this because God mentions it. It catches his notice. There's something about the Amalekites and their attack on Israel that God would record in Deuteronomy. You would go up just one generation forward, and, and the people of God would now be entering that promised land that he was bringing them to. And before they enter the land, he records this in Deuteronomy. He says to this people, now before you go in, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary, when you were worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind, typically the women and children. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land he gives you to possess as an inheritance, this is promised to Abraham, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So it's bookend. Remember and do not forget. This was something significant. What happened to the nation of Israel as they were coming out of slavery and bondage, they had just seen the, the majestic display of God's power to rescue them. And they were viciously attacked, and God takes note. And he says there will be a consequence for this behavior. So it's curious because I'm guessing, if I'm reading biblical history, that there were other nations that would attack Israel. True? And also, I think that there were other nations that did not fear God. So what is significant about this specific group that God would take such a, a, uh, a charge with? And I think, I think it has to do with the context. I believe that because God, had done so many wonderful signs. He had done so many wonders in the presence of Egypt, who, who was the known ruling power of the world at that time. And he had done so many signs to show his people who he was, to put himself on display, his power, his majesty, his ability to save. 
And then there's this marauding group, these Amalekites, who come up and they go, you know what? I see who you are. I see what you've done. I see you brought the nation of Egypt to its knees, but I don't fear you. I don't fear, and it's not in a, in a sense of like, I don't fear you, like I'm afraid of what you're going to do to me. It's that I don't reverence you. I don't respect you. I don't honor you. You, God of the Hebrews, may not be afraid. And for that, God takes And so before the people go into the land, he says, remember and do not forget. There's something significant about their response. And I want us to see, I want want us to catch a glimpse of maybe a heart attitude that sometimes we might have. See, because sometimes I don't think we, I don't think we always take as seriously the way God intends for us to. I don't think we always see the way in which God is working in majesty, in power, and doing incredible things in our lives. And sometimes do we look at that and we just say, I don't have a lot of reverence or respect for that. I don't, I don't, I, I, I like you, God, when you're tucked away over here. But, but you're not going to keep me from doing things that I want to do. Do we ever see that same attitude in ourselves? I know I do. And so when I was reading that, and I was reading about how seriously God took that when the Amalekites not only attacked his people, but also demonstrated that in, in God's presence, when they had seen his majesty and his power put on display, that they didn't have and, and I know that I can be guilty of that. And so it's a good reminder to us, when do we see the presence of God? Do we see him working in our lives? Sometimes I think we, we, we think, well, if I could have been one of those Israelites, man, that would have been awesome. And you see the, the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. That would have been incredible. But you know what? Even though they saw and experienced those miraculous signs, and they saw God's wonder put on display in physical ways, they still, when they got to the other side, doubted God, grumbled, complained, were fearful. They still didn't understand who he was, even though he had done those things. And you know, we're no different. I, I sometimes think, well, well, how do I see those things? Do I see God doing miraculous works? I mean, maybe if he came in and parted the ceiling, then we'd all be in awe of him. But do you know that when we see him transform a life, that it is the same miraculous power that it takes to transform someone from death to life? And are we in awe of that? Does that reality, when it is face-to-face with us, does it change how we then reverence God? And it should, shouldn't it? So the Amalekites, they're going to be an important people. So we see that as time would go forward, the people would go into the land. And God would remind them once again, don't forget my promise, my faithfulness to follow through on holding an Amalek accountable for the behavior that they demonstrated, the way that they treated you, and that they did not have fear of me. And so the, uh, the Israelites 
settle there, and they would, from generation to generation, continue to, to follow God less and less. And the Amalekites would continue to be problematic for them. The Amalekites were a vicious, violent, and formidable tribe. They were nomadic, and they lived in the area south of Canaan between Mount Sire and the Egyptian border. Another thing that we should know about the Amalekites is that they were descendants of one of those not chosen patriarchs. Does anyone know who the descendant of the, uh, of the Amalekites might be? Esau, Jacob's twin brother. The Amalekites are descendants, or the Amal Amalekite, the original gentleman who led that tribe, was the grandson of Esau. And Esau was not, he sold his birthright, so he wasn't the son of promise, but he would go on to become a leader of a great people. And one of them would become the Amalekites. And so they, this was not their first encounter with God. They knew of who the Hebrew God was because it was part of their story as well. So the people would settle into the land, and now we would come to the time which we would describe as the judges. And if you remember last, uh, last Easter, that's really off. Last summer we were studying the book of Ruth, which also took place in the time of the judges. The time of the judges was when um, the, the theme could be wrapped up in, the, in this saying, as recorded in the end of the book, that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so this became the common uh, reality for the people who are now being saved. They've been taken out of uh, slavery and bondage. They've been brought now by this powerful God who desires to be their God and wants to dwell with them, and he wants them to be his people. But they're a rebellious people, and they're easily forgetful. And they ultimately like having God, and they like kind of the idea of having a king, but they don't really want him to rule in their lives. What they really want is they want to do what's right in their own eyes. And so that's what characterizes this time period. And coming out of that time period, the, pe the people during that are being continually attacked. The Amalekites will join with the Moabites, remember the Moabites, and, and different other tribal groups, and they will continually attack Israel. So Israel decides that, you know what, if we could band together and have one central rule, like a king, then we could, we could be a more powerful nation and we could defend ourselves better. And so they reject God as king, and they decide that they'd like to have their own king. So God says, okay, and they go ahead and they pick for themselves um, a man that they chose. And his name was Saul. So Saul was chosen because he was head and shoulders above other men. Saul was also from the tribe of Benjamin. So now if you're going to be a note taker, that would be a good note to put down. Saul is from, he's a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. And so Saul, head and shoulders above other men, is going to be anointed as king. But God has a caveat for Saul. He says, if you're going to step into the role of king of the nation, of the nation of Israel, that I saved from bondage and slavery, that I brought out, 
slave. Then I want you to listen to my voice and obey. And so during that time, God had raised up a prophet. They didn't have the completed word of God like we have today. And so God would choose a man, a prophet, that would become the mouthpiece or the voice of God. And he would talk to the prophet, and the prophet would instruct the king with what the Lord would will and say. And so God is saying, I'll anoint you as king, but you have to listen and obey. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15 in verse 1. And just join me when you get there. And Samuel said to Saul, so this is Samuel, he's the prophet, and he says to Saul, who is now the king, the Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. And now the Lord is going to give him his first commission, his first activity that he is to do as king. And listen to what it is in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt, right back to Deuteronomy. Remember and do not forget. So what's the first task that Saul is charged with? He's charged with wiping out the Amalekites for what they have done to Israel. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. And he specifically lists in here the ox, the sheep, the camels, and donkeys. In that culture, an agricultural culture, that would have been the plunder. And so he's saying, go and wipe them out, but don't go for, for the plunder. Don't go for the, the riches Go because you are being obedient to my word. And I'm asking you, right, to take the Amalekites out because they have continued to be a burden and attack my people. So Saul's been given his first task by God. And how he responds will prove out whether he will be obedient to the instructions of God or will he choose to do what is right in his own God reveals the areas of our lives that are also destructive to us. Are there areas in our lives that, like the Amalekites, maybe they're areas uh, of sin, wrong thinking, wrong feelings, that we kind of mess along, but we don't really deal with? And God is saying, that sin, that wrong thinking, that wrong behavior is going to be a a destructive nature to you. And I want you to blot it out. And sometimes that's harder to do than we think. I love the Old Testament narrative because it is often a physical symbolic picture of some of the spiritual realities that we experience after the flesh. And so in the same way, God recognizes the Amalekites as being destructive to his people and continuing to be so. There are things that God will reveal to us that also have the potential to be destructive to us. And so Saul goes and he defeats the Amalekites. He defeats them from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So he has a great victory. Now, this is Saul's first task. And remember, he's a new king. 
And so he's kind of thinking, wow, we've actually done really great. This makes me look really good. Remember, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. And they want the other nations to take note of who they are, right? And so I was thinking, oh, yeah, look at what I did, right? I went and I wiped out this marauding tribe that was a nuisance to all sorts of people because they attacked and were vicious and violent in all sorts of ways. But we, the new nation under the new king, just defeated them. And it was a great victory. But Saul and the people spared Agag. Now that's going to be another name you're going to want to take note of. So if you're writing down notes, you should write down the name Agag. It's kind of a fun name to say. Everybody should try it, right? Agag. I kind of picture him like a short, hairy guy that's in the shape of an egg. Right? So we have Agag, and Samuel, or Saul, spares him. Saul and the people spare Agag, and they spare the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good. Now, what did we say all that was? That was spoil, right? And what did God say? God was pretty specific about what he said that you should not keep. He was to destroy all of it. And so here's Saul in his pride, in his arrogance, and he has kept Agag. Agag happens to be the king of the Amalekites of that time. And so he's the ruling leader. And what do you think the tribe does as long as their king is alive? What are they thinking? There's still hope, right? We still have a chance because Agag's still alive. And so there were still some remnants of Agag's family and some other Amalekites who had not completely been destroyed because they were too busy catching plunder. So how does Saul respond? So Samuel came to Saul. And this part kind of reminds me of a parenting scene. Okay, so if Samuel's like the, you know, the dad and Saul's like the kid, right? So Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul said to him, all right, so Saul sees Samuel coming. Remember, Samuel's the prophet, the voice of God. He sees him coming, and he says, blessed be you, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I did it, right? He's taking full credit. He's saying, I fulfilled everything God asked me to do. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And it's kind of that moment where, where the kid's trying to tell you, yeah, yeah, I, I did exactly, I took out the garbage, right? And you're sitting there going, then what is all that stuff spilling out of the can? What is that? Because the evidence of your disobedience is so plain. And that's what Samuel's saying. What is the bleeding of the sheep and the, lo- sheep and the lowing of the cattle? What's this that I hear? And so Saul says, Saul responds, They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Okay, see a little blame shifting here? The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. And now he puts a spin on it. To sacrifice to the Lord, and notice the term he uses, your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. 
And so now here comes Samuel, and you can see his justification just rising to the surface. First of all, he says it was the people who did it. But here's why, Samuel. Don't, I mean, don't worry about it. Because you know what we're going to do? We decided instead of just slaughtering them out in the field, we decided we'd bring them in and we would sacrifice them. See, we weren't going to kill them all along. I haven't been disappointed. You see the spin? You see the slippery slope of truth? that Saul is on. So Samuel said, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Samuel already knew. God knew. See, God knows the heart of the man, not just the external. And he already told Samuel what Saul had done. And so Samuel was just giving Saul the opportunity to be a truth teller. So in verse 17, he says, The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Then why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And so he's just asking him, He's laying it out and saying, this is what the Lord said to do. And he just lays out exactly what the command was and exactly how Paul, uh, Saul disobeyed. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. It's their fault. They're the ones that did it. I did what was right. They took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. And Samuel said, and, and this hopefully is going to be a familiar passage to you, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And so what Samuel is saying is, but don't you understand? God doesn't want your religious activities. He wants your internal heart. He wants you to live in dependence and obedience to him. Not because he's some cruel, high and lofty God who just wants authority and loyalty and wants you to prove it by sacrifice and redeem and jumping through certain hoops. God is saying, obey me because you are broken and unable to know what to do and how to live in a way that will be a blessing to you and bring glory to me. So God is, is after our hearts. And how many times, how many times are we hearers of the word, as Granger put it, but not doers? And we deceive ourselves. Same truth as in the Old Testament, as James will say in the New Testament. So the first question I have is, do you hear the voice of the Lord? You know, you don't have to have a prophet these days to hear it, right? We don't, we don't need a prophet because we have something greater. Now, if we place our faith on Christ at the cross, we have the completed word of God as well as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
which will take the word of God and teach us everything that we need to know about him and how to live in godliness and righteousness. It will teach us how to obey and how to depend on him. We don't need Samuel because we can go directly to the Lord ourselves. That's a great truth. So do we know the word of the Lord? Do we listen? We have to ask ourselves that. What an incredible privilege that we have full access to listen to God all the time, unlimitedly. But the second question is not just do we listen. The question is, do we do like James was saying? Not just are we a hearer, but are we a doer? And what that means is, does the word of God come into our heart and penetrate us, draw us closer to who he is, and change who we are? That is the purpose of God's word. He loves you just as you are, but he didn't intend to leave you that way. He wants you to look more and more like him. And the only way that happens is to the degree that we are actually living out that dependence and obedience. So we have to be hearers of the word. We have to be able to listen. How often are you listening to God's word? Are you listening to a whole bunch of other things, the world and all of its uh, information and, and theories and concepts? It surrounds us all the time. If we are not intentional about listening to the word of God, which is an incredible privilege to be able to do, then we can never be doers of what he says or obedient to then what he's asking us to do. How can we be on mission for God if we don't even hear what he asks us to do? We are missing out on all that God created us to be simply because we are not ones who hear or listen. And God is saying the same thing to Saul. Is it not awesome that it's recorded in Scripture so that we could learn from the story? We don't have to learn it for ourselves. God says, I've recorded it so that it would be an, an instruction to you. So here's Saul. He, didn't, he heard the words, but he did not obey. In verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, For you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being a king over Israel. That was a short stint, wasn't it? God said, here's the caveat, Saul. You have to listen and obey. And here's the first test. And Saul failed. And then he lost the kingdom. He and his descendants would lose the kingdom, the throne. There was a consequence for his disobedience. Now we live post-fast in God's grace. And we have accounted to us or attributed to us the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at us, even in our failures, and this piece, is, this piece just blows my mind. He looks at us as if we had lived Christ's perfect life. That's amazing. It isn't just that he took our sin, which is amazing in and of itself, but that he gives us his righteousness. Ladies, that ought to transform then how I respond to the living God who has put himself on display so that when I see his majesty, his glory, his signs, and his wonders, I am impacted. 
and have a reverential respect for him and honor. And I want to listen then to his words. And I don't want to just hear his words, but I want to obey him because he is loving and sovereign and wise and good. And he's a much better king than I am. So God wants also um, for us to be ones who listen and obey. Because of Saul's disobedience, the remaining Amalekites would continue to harass and plunder the Israelites in successive generations that would span hundreds of years. The Amalekites lacked the fear of God and a hatred of the Jews, and the repeated attempts to destroy God's people led to their ultimate doom. The Amalekites would ultimately be destroyed, and King Saul would ultimately be too deposed for his disobeying the words of the Lord. There would continue to be deep-seated animosity between the descendants of Saul and the descendants of Agag for centuries to come. This animosity continues to plague the nation of Israel, even in its modern times. We, uh, there's a quote that um, Golda Meir says, and, and it's interesting because we still see this this animosity between the two different people groups that live there in the Middle East. And so she makes a statement, we will only have peace with the Arabs when they love their children more than they hate us. So remember, that animosity was not taken care of back by Saul. He didn't complete the task. And so the Amalekites will continue to plague the Israelites in history to come. So what about King Agag? Agag is the king of the Amalekites, and he has, he'll have one final act on this world stage of history before we will finally be completely blotted out. So in verse 32 of, Sam, of um, 1 Samuel chapter 15, remember, Saul's been deposed, and so Samuel, the prophet, who loves, hears God's word and obeys it exactly, he says, bring me King Agag. And so I, I, I kind of picture, I mean, it's like a movie, right? It's one of those big tents, and you can see inside the tent, you've got your warriors standing there. You would have had your throne room. You probably have a deposed and very um, sour-faced Saul sitting there, maybe holding his head in his hands. He's just found out that he's lost the kingdom. He's lost the throne and his descendants forever. And so he's sitting there, and Samuel steps forward and says, Now bring me King Agag. Bring him here. And so the next scene takes place. Agag comes in, and he's in a great mood. And he says, Surely the bitterness of death has passed. And so King Agag comes in. He's arrogant. He's positive, and he's thinking, you know what? I'm not in danger anymore. I'm going to be okay. I heard the whole thing. You know, this guy's out. He didn't do what the Lord said, so I'm not in trouble anymore. And, you know, we can probably work this out. I'll work this out with his prophet later, right? And so Samuel looks at him, and he says this statement, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And he reaches over 
Maybe he grabs a sword from one of the soldiers standing there, and he hacks Ahab to pieces. Samuel wasn't a warrior. That wasn't a, he wasn't accustomed to the brutality and the violence of warfare. And yet, he listened and obeyed because he knew of the potential destruction of allowing Ahab to live. But he didn't get this. And even if he didn't fully understand what would be the futuristic consequences, he knew God did. And if God said it was right that this king be killed, then he knew that he had to fully obey for the nation's sake and for God's sake. Agag is like some of those pet sins, some of those things that we continue to struggle with that we don't really fully deal with. But God, in his graciousness, orchestrates to bring to the surface so that we are aware of them. And he says, this is destruction to you. Blot it out. And yet, sometimes we struggle to do the hard things. What would it mean for me to hack to pieces some of those, those sinful strongholds that still plague me? And, and I'm not necessarily thinking of some of those big ones, right? I'm not thinking of some of the ones that are easily, easily come to mind. You know, we easily kind of go through the checklist. Well, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing this. I'm doing pretty good. And yet God is saying that the standard for obedience is that I would love him with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, all the time. Do you want to know how successful I am with that? Do you want to know how many things that come into the way that I actually love more than God in any given day? I struggle with that. As a matter of fact, I tend to love myself a lot more than I tend to love God. So I have to be very intentional about hacking to pieces the things that could draw my heart's desire away from loving God with all my heart. Does that make sense? So God gives us a powerful illustration of the seriousness of undealt with sin in the situation. So God would remind them, remember, do not forget the seriousness of what I've commanded you. Will you be a good listener and obey? The sins we keep will come back in persistent patterns of destruction in our lives. So God calls us to kill these sins by learning to identify and die to, ultimately, our self-rule. Those desires or those fears that keep drawing us into those unhealthy patterns. And so Israel would continue to live in the land. But their leaders and their people would struggle with listening and obeying to the word of the Lord. This would eventually lead to judgment. And God would raise up a nation then that would come and enslave them once again. That would be the nation of Babylon. The Babylonian captivity would take place almost 500 years from the time of Saul. And so generations had passed, but their struggles were still the same. They would have some faithful leaders that would follow God, that would listen and obey, but they'd have many who would just do what seemed best in their own eyes. And it would bring the nation to destruction again and again and again. And God warned in Jeremiah that 
judgment is coming in the form of a nation that would come and subdue them, and it did. And that was the Babylonian, uh, uh, the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonian Empire first comes and begins to deport as per their style. They would come in, conquer a people, and then they would go and pick out the best, the brightest, the most good-looking, the leaders of that people group, and they would bring them or deport them then to Babylon, and they would then educate them and assimilate them into their culture in hopes that those people would then lead the rest of the captive nation to assimilate as well. It was a beautiful plan, and it worked very well. It helped keep Babylon in power for many, many, many years. The first deportation would take a group of gentlemen that you may remember from the narrative in Daniel, and they would go and be taken to Babylon. But Babylon would, after 70 years, be taken by another king, King Cyrus, and Cyrus would come in and he would make a new decree. He was a Persian, and this was a new era. And he, his style was that there could be religious freedom and some um, autonomy. So he released the Jewish people who were in captivity in the era of Babylon to return to their land. And so many did. They gathered up and they returned back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, and began the long process of rebuilding. But a lot of people stayed. And there was good reasons why they stayed now, not in Babylon, but now in the Persian Empire. They stayed because perhaps they had little children or, or a job that they were already um, in the marketplace and were doing well in order to support their family. And it would be somewhat dangerous, could be very tasking to go and kind of pioneer now a, a land that had been abandoned that was um, open to marauding, marauders and didn't have the protection and all of the luxuries that Persia offered. And so a lot of people stayed where they were, and God had made provisions for the Jewish people on what it looked like to live in captivity. So they knew how they could continue to, uh, to practice their religious sacrifices and their temple worship and how they could honor God and be separate from the nation, still be a blessing to that people. And that's what many, many, many people did. We have to understand something about one more person before we close tonight. And this will be an important person for us to really be able to grasp the story of Esther. After the edicts of Cyrus, the release of the people who have been subject, subjugated by the Babylonians, many went back to uh, rebuild Jerusalem and the city of Israel by the decree of Cyrus. Um, he would go on to have a grandson who would rule, and that grandson's name is Xerxes. Now, Xerxes was an interesting and very powerful historical figure. There's actually a lot of information about him. And so initially, the regions of Greece had been conquered by the Persians under Cyrus. So if you remember a little bit of your history now, 
we're going out of biblical history, and you remember there was going to be some great big famous wars that are going to be part of our Western civilization. Okay, if you did, most of you did your school, you took a Western civilization history class. Anybody remember that? So just a quick crash course, the Western civilization would be that Hellenistic period, the Greeks who heavily influenced what we call now our Western way of life, our Western way of thinking, right, comes down through Greece, eventually to Rome, and then Europe and to the United States. And so we have a, a, a connection to that historical time. So Persia is the world empire at that time, but Greece will be the next one. And so we begin to see Greece growing in power and Persia coming and wanting to subdue them, to get them back under control, because they want to rule and to reign for as long as possible. And so Xerxes is the king that's in power at this specific time. And he has a father who has had some skirmishes with Greece, Greece who should have been easily wiped out by the Persian army, which was the greatest marching army at that time in world history. But he's given a terrible defeat. And before Xerxes' father can go back and exact his vengeance on Greece, he dies. And so his vengeance is passed to his son, Xerxes. And Xerxes now is commissioned not only with running the, the empire, but also with making sure that he restores his father's name and exacts his father's vengeance on this people, Greece. And so Xerxes has this campaign, this desire that he wants to fulfill. And so he will go to great lengths to be able to bring together the greatest army amassed ever in world history at, up till then and to attack the Greeks. And there would be some famous battles that would come out of that, like the Battle of Marathon, which we get the, the marathon, the term marathon because it was run, a man ran for 26 miles. You guys remember that? There's some great movies like the, the 300 and Spartans and all of that comes out of this time period. Fascinating that while we're studying biblical history, all of this other historic or world history is taking place. So there's some things that will be helpful for us to understand about this man personally. He was like any emperor, full of his own pride and his own self-worth. He was um, in all ways raised in a palace and raised to believe that he would be God on earth. And so we have some examples that come down written from historical uh, documents to tell us a little bit about his character that will help us understand who he is when he shows up in the biblical narrative. And so Xerxes was a man who believed he not just had power over the nation that he ruled, the army that he led, and the people that he subdued, but also the created elements themselves. While waiting to invade in his great last campaign against Greece, He's there at the northern part of Turkey 
waiting to pass through the narrow strip of land in which he has to cross the body of water there. And so in order to get across, he orders bridges to be built. So these, uh, these engineers at that time come, they build these bridges, but there is a great storm that comes and destroys all of the bridges, and Xerxes is furious. So he pulls out all of the engineers who had designed the bridges, and he has them immediately beheaded. But not just that. He's not just a man who rules other men. He's a man who rules the elements themselves. So furious was he at the water for destroying the bridges that he had his men go out and whip the water with 300 lashes. Not just that, he had them take in shackles and chains to chain and put into bondage the water, the disobedient water. And then one final blow to let the water know who he was and not to mess with him again, he had them take hot irons to burn the water, right? This was his thinking. This is who he thought he was, God on earth to rule and reign sovereign over all humanity. And yet, history would look at him foolishly, right? You You all laugh. We laugh because why? It's ridiculous. He didn't rule Calvin with authority over the water. But this was the mindset of the king and who he believed he was and who others told him he was, who was the emperor, God on earth, king of the Persian empire. So there's some things I want us to think about. Xerxes will show up in our story. And you might recognize his name, not as Xerxes, but as Ahasuerus. So now, hopefully, you have some idea of some of the historical context, as well as a little bit of the character nature of this man. And while that part is interesting, and I love the history, what I want to remind us of is that even though all those things are happening, even though there are great empires and nations, and we are going to see now the nation in this this great king, this emperor of Persia, is going to slowly begin to topple, and a new empire, the Greek, the Hellenistic period, will come in. God, the living God, the same God who put his power and majesty, his signs and wonders on display to bring his people out of bondage to Egypt, to bring them into salvation, into a promised land, the same living God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to go and die on a cross and bear his wrath to pay for our sins. That same God is sovereign, and he is in control of all those kings and empires. He is orchestrating his great story of redemption. And that should give us great hope as we look at God's sovereignty, his fingerprints being played out over and over and over again through the story of redemption. We should take note 
And that should give us confidence that the same God then is in control of our lives. Events that unfold that don't make sense to us, that often seem confusing, chaotic, or discouraging, or painful. He is still orchestrating it. And get this, Scripture tells us, for our good and for His glory. He is sovereign over all. And we will see Him in great displays, signs and wonders, as we look together at the book of Esther. Dearly Father, Lord, I just thank you tonight for the incredible time of being able to study your word, how you speak so powerfully through whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, it all speaks of you, your character, your nature, your power of redemption and salvation. Lord God, may we be in awe of who you are. And Lord, I pray that you would just use your word tonight, not just that it would give us an an intellectual experience or or, or teach us more about a, 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 a book in the form of a literature, Lord, but that it would be something that would actually change us internally, that we would be ones who hear and then listen or obey, that we would be doers of your word, that it would it would impact us and have us do something in response. And Lord God, I pray that your word that we've heard tonight and the Holy Spirit would individually work then in the lives of each individual, Lord, because you are sovereign and you know exactly what you want us to hear and exactly what your spirit would bring to the surface for us to be aware of. I pray that we would be touched by you. And thank you so much that you love us, that you're mindful of us, that you would use us, Lord God, that you would make yourself known. And we are incredibly grateful and in awe of who you are. And Jesus, we just commit these things to you in your name. Amen. We're going to go into